Revelation 14, 6 through 13. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an everlasting gospel to be proclaimed to those who reside on the earth, to every ethnic nation and tribe and language and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judging has come, and do obeisance to him who made heaven and earth, the ocean and springs of water. And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It fell, it fell, Babylon the great. She made all the nations drink of the wine of the rage of her fornication. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, really, he will drink of the wine of the fury of God, mixed at full strength in the cup of his wrath. In fact, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. So the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and their works follow along with them. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Difficult passage, a passage we need rebuke on, that we need reformation on. Uh, and I pray that the church of Jesus Christ as a whole would indeed find reformation as you, by your Spirit, open up the eyes of your people and you cause them once again to stand steadfast in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you are probably too young to remember some of the fire and brimstone preaching of the past. Uh, some of it was truly horrible. It wasn't really good stuff. But there were some preachers who were used by God so powerfully in their preaching on God's wrath and judgment that people felt like they were face to face with God, sometimes feeling like they were on the brink, uh, teetering on the brink of uh, uh, hell. If you've never read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, that would be a sermon that you could read to just get a little bit of a feel for the preachers of the past. And I think we desperately need the Lord to raise up many more preachers like this uh, to bring reformation today. But nowadays, people have a strong distaste for such preachers. They don't want to think about God's wrath, his judgment, or hell. John Blanchard said, hell seems to have fallen on hard times. <laughs> and he cited several statistics in the West uh, to prove that. Uh, a later study after that book was published shows that only about 3% of the American population believes that they have any chance of going to hell. I'm sure a large majority of the population continually tells people to go there, uh, misusing that term. But David Lodge claims, at some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one can say for certain when this happened or why. And when he says disappeared, disappeared from the church. Uh, numerous studies have shown that churches, generally speaking, do not preach on the doctrine of hell. In fact, there was a very recent survey of all of the 
what they labeled, however they define successful evangelical churches, probably big churches, right? Uh, the survey showed that the vast majority, it was close to all of them, uh, had never preached on hell one time in the entire church's existence. Never preached on hell. Kenneth Cancer, editor of Christianity Today magazine, said that he hadn't heard a sermon on hell in 30 years. 30, not three, 30 years. Senior editor of that same magazine said that the passing of hell from modern consciousness is one of the major, if still largely undocumented, modern trends. And so many scholars have shown that hell seems to be a doctrine uh, that's of bygone ages, no longer something that the church either believes in or is willing to at least teach on. But it's not just an issue of hell being sidelined. Anything negative in the scripture, anything, whether it is biblical penalties for crimes or whether it is God's wrath or whether it is preaching on sin or judgment, it's a thing of the past. In um, his book, The Potter's Freedom, uh, James White, and he's a pretty famous guy. If you've never read any of his stuff, it's usually pretty good. Uh, he's a Reformed Baptist uh, teacher. But um, James White says, Paul's letter to the Romans would fail almost every evangelism class currently offered in seminaries because he starts with the bad news. Without a single poem, no funny illustrations or multimedia aids, the inspired apostle drags on about the sinfulness of men, Jew and Gentile alike. That's just not kosher in the postmodern church. But this chapter shows that proclaiming God's perspective on sin, judgment, and God's wrath is an absolutely essential component of true missions. James White argues one must first understand the bad news and Rodney alluded to that this morning, the bad news before we can even understand the significance of the good news. And I believe he is right. Now let me give you the context of where we've been so far on this uh, chapter on missions. Two weeks ago, we saw that God had raised up and preserved 144,000 missionaries in verses 1 through 5. Then we saw last week that there were angels who were involved, not just the angel in verse 6, but there are several angels, seven altogether, who were involved in this massive ingathering of saints. But these verses give the negative preparatory side of the gospel that prepares the way for Jesus to bring in the huge harvest of souls in verses 14 through 16. So if we want to repeat in our own day of the kind of massive ingathering of souls that verses 14 through 16 will document, then we need to have the preconditions that we're going to go through today in these verses. And we don't have them today. They are not present. Uh, I ask several questions in your outline to illustrate that. The first question is, whatever happened to seeing God's hand in national disasters? I've read through quite a few sermons from the 1600s to, to the 1800s, especially uh, sermons on uh, political days. Uh, there are a lot of political sermons during those years. And one of the constantly recurring themes was an immediate recognition that God was judging the nation for its sins when they would see things like flu epidemics, famine, war, hurricanes, locust plagues. I mean, you have a hurricane happen today, 
Nobody calls the nation to repentance. Uh, it just doesn't seem to happen. And by the way, it wasn't just the churches that were calling the nation to repentance. Uh, you look at the governors around the various states, and you look at presidents and the Congress itself, and uh, you see that they would call for days of fasting and confession of sins, prayers uh, for mercy from Almighty God. By the way, Google Books just is constantly um, photocopying old, out-of-print things. You look on Google Books and you can see all of the declarations, for example, the calls to prayer by governors, by presidents of the United States, and uh, it's astounding how unapologetically and clearly they attributed national calamities to God's hand of judgment. I'll just give you one example. John Adams treated the dicey circumstances that they faced in 1798 as being God's just judgment on the nation for its wicked sins and called upon the nation to fast and to pray throughout the entire day of May 9 and quote, abstaining on that day from their customary worldly occupations offer their devout addresses to the Father of mercies and with deepest humility acknowledge before God the manifold sins and transgressions with which we are justly chargeable as individuals and as a nation, beseeching him at the same time of his infinite grace through the Redeemer of the world, freely to remit all our offenses and to incline us by his Holy Spirit to that sincere repentance and reformation which may afford us reason to hope for his inestimable favor and heavenly benediction. Oh, that we had such recognition of God's judgments today, and we'd have calls to repentance like that to our nation today from, from presidents. Adams goes on for two more paragraphs in that vein, and I found that, that was not out of the ordinary. There are numerous examples of this in the first 150 years of our nation's existence. Immediate recognition that national disaster of whatever sort should lead our nation to repentance. So what has happened to a willingness to see God's hand in our national calamities? Uh, even some of my fellow Reformed ministers from other denominations are very reluctant uh, to see this. They do not see these things as God's hand preparing a nation for the gospel. Verse 8 says, And another, a second angel followed, saying, It fell, it fell, Babylon the great, she made all the nations drink of the wine of the rage of her fornication. Now, before we look at the significance of this statement with regard to missions, uh, let me give you the historical background. We've already seen that in terms of the chronology of these chapters, this, these events occurred shortly after the fall of Jerusalem. And that's why it uses the past tense. It fell, it fell Babylon the grace. It's past tense, it's already happened. We saw that the temple was burned on August 3 of AD 70, and uh, there was a resurrection, other astounding things that happened on that day. On August 14, Titus raised the siege works, the earthworks for the northern city. By September 1, the entire city had been conquered. And uh, by this time, the occupation government provisions that we studied in chapter 13 were already in place, including imposition of our uh, Roman, exclusive Roman coinage, Mark of the Beast being branded on Jewish heads and hands, and the occupation government tightly controlling uh, the economy. Things were a mess for the people, but this is precisely the time that these 144,000 Christians uh, who were hiding in the regions around Pella came out of hiding 
and they began to evangelize Israel and, thus, and then the rest of the Roman world and beyond. Now this chapter especially is going to be showing that God once again starts evangelism uh, within Israel, Jewish evangelism. So I think it's appropriate to think of the kinds of changes in thinking that had to happen before Talmudists uh, could be harvested in verses 14 through 16. The gospel message really is a redefining of everything that a person thinks. At least it should be. The true gospel is a complete turning up of our world. Upside down, maybe you should say right side up. I keep saying upside down, but it's already upside down. Turning it right side up. Uh, an unregenerate person, for example, tends to think very highly of himself, but the work of evangelists, angels, and the Holy Spirit in this chapter have brought them to despair of any self-confidence or any self-trust. The unregenerate, they tend to trust money and people and the state and anything other than God, and God has providentially vaporized those things out of their lives and shown them things are not what they appear, and the only thing you can truly trust that will always be there is God. He can be trusted. Now look at the revolutionary implications of each word. First of all, this angel has just insulted Jerusalem by calling it Babylon. Pharisees would have considered that blasphemy. It would be equivalent to saying over the radio today that America is an abomination to God, not worthy of the least of his mercies, and it is blasphemy to sing the hymn, God bless America, when America is in such rebellion against God. It is blasphemy. That's the kind of impact. Now, we can get away with it here. I don't think they would have gotten away with it as easily uh, back in Israel. These were fighting words. We already saw that the Jews of that day believed that God would bless and would save Israel, that they were a special, a great nation, and to say otherwise was considered by them, to quote a recent speech by, a blasphemous speech by former President uh, George Bush, blasphemy against the state. When I heard George Bush say that, I thought, what? Blasphemy against the state, that's almost assuming that the state is God. And of course, that's the way paganism treats the state, isn't it? God walking on earth. But in any case, John doesn't mince any words in this book. He calls their beloved state in this book a beast, a demon. Chapter 11, verse 8, John describes the city where Jesus was crucified. That's Jerusalem. He calls it Sodom and Egypt. I mean, that's almost the worst insults you could possibly give uh, to uh, them. But to call Jerusalem Babylon, wow. <laughs> them's fighting words, that, that's the kind of words that John would get himself shot with if they had had guns back then. Unthinkable. Now, I'm not going to get sidetracked uh, into debates around the identity of this great city because I already, anticipating this, that I'd need to take all the time for other subjects, dealt fully with the identity of what this book calls the great city in chapter 11, verse 8. And then when we get to chapter 18, we're going to see 23 exegetical proofs that nail down solidly the identity of the great city Babylon as being a metaphor for Jerusalem. And not only those exegetical points, but you just look at the history of what was going on, and you'll see all kinds of examples of this, that the origin of Talmudism was not from the Bible, it was from Babylon, and 
their highest authority was not the Bible, it was the Babylonian Talmud. We'll see the occult symbols that in the last days of, of Jerusalem they actually carved. This is just astonishing to me. Makes the hair stand on the back of your neck, but they carved these occult images into the temple furniture. And you can actually see it on the Arch of Titus carrying out these these furniture pieces, people have said they must have put that in there, but no, recent evidence shows they carved those occult uh, symbols right into the temple furniture. They replaced the biblical curtain with a Babylonian uh, curtain. So anyway, on many different levels, it was through and through Babylon, at least spiritually speaking, but the average Jew didn't see it that way. God bless America, well, God bless Israel back there. They did not see that as a nation under Satan. They saw Israel as being a nation under God. Second, the unthinkable had indeed happened. Jerusalem had fallen, and this angel is rubbing it in. The Jewish rebels had insisted God would never let the temple fall into Roman hands, and Josephus mentions that over and over again. They were absolutely confident God would not let it happen. Right up till the very end, they were convinced God was going to turn things around and rescue them, just like he had in the past. They were so deceived, and it took an incredible humbling of their spirit for them to acknowledge God had made Jerusalem fall just like he made Babylon crash. Their trust was in the city and in the temple, and this mission's message was breaking that trust and showing that it was idolatrous. Anything, including statism, that stands in the way of the gospel must be treated as a stronghold that must be taken down. Third, verse 8 says, she made all the nations drink of the wine of the rage of her fornication. Far from being better than the Gentiles, she had been in bed with the Gentiles and was one with them. So that too was a humiliating analogy, and it would have taken this kind of strong language to break through the spiritual blindness that had gripped uh, the population. And by the way, the fornication was not just metaphorical, it was real. You could look at it from either angle. For example, on the real side, we've already pointed out that... Uh, uh, Nero um, was married to a Jewess, and she controlled, and even the historians agree with this, she controlled them, but who controlled her? It was the leaders of Israel who were managing the empire through her control of Nero. Queen Berenice was the mistress of Titus, and she manipulated Titus. So the two greatest leaders during those war periods of Israel were very literally heads over heels with women who had prostituted themselves and controlled the leaders with literal lust of their fornication, which is the way some people translate that instead of rage of her fornication, lust. Uh, the word means deep, deep desire of some sort. I think it's probably lust of her fornication. But the primary fornication was spiritual and economic. We've looked at that adequately in the past. You know, the billionaire families uh, that were connected with Ananus, and uh, we're not going to look at all the corruption until we get to chapter 18. But each of these phrases would have hit first century Jews like a ton of bricks if he had told them these things before the war. Okay? They weren't ready for the message back then. Before the war, Jews thought the exact opposite of these words. But by the end of their war, their idolatrous trust in statism, political intrigue, power, money, and other things had been ground into dust. Everything they trusted was in ruins. And so what a perfect situation for these 144,000 to come into to declare, look, the humanism you trusted in 
has let you down. You should trust in Jesus alone. Wars have a way of humbling people and preparing them for the gospel. Now, the sad thing is that modern missions no longer preaches that war, economic judgments, and other disasters are judgments from God. When people have a deistic view of God on the issues of these national disasters, it undercuts missions. But when you declare all judgments as coming from God's hand, at the same time, you lovingly minister to those who are victims of that war, victims of the disaster. It's an incredible platform for the gospel. In fact, it's such a powerful platform for the gospel that Henry Chadwick, a famous historian, said that the Christian mercy ministries to war victims famine victims, victims of disasters, was the single greatest cause of the church's growth in the first three centuries. They helped people see that they needed to fear the God of Scripture because He brought these judgments, and they needed to trust the God of Scripture because He was the God of mercy, not the state. And they could see the mercy and love lived out tangibly in the lives of Christians. Now, the second thing that needs to be restored to missions is preaching the wrath of God. Whatever happened to such preaching? It seems the only thing that people preach nowadays to the pagans is the love of God. You've probably heard various slogans, you know, smile, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Theologians have pointed out you will look in vain in the, in the preaching of Christ to pagans for the theme of the love of God. Now, that may be a little overstated, but it certainly was not the emphasis. The emphasis of Christ's preaching was not the love of God at all. It was the wrath of God against all sin and against all sinners. <clears throat> this is what this angel is preaching. Look at verses 9 through 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, really, he will drink of the wine of the fury of God, mixed at full strength in the cup of his wrath. Now, we dealt with the mark of the beast in a previous sermon, so I'm not going to try to prove that or anything. Uh, both Josephus and Yohanan ben Zakkai had convinced the population it was okay to give a pinch of incense to Caesar and to receive that mark uh, in, their, in their bodies because to do otherwise was suicide. Uh, it was uh, suicide. Anyway, it was astonishing the kind of compromise their faith, uh, they were able to have uh, with their faith. There was a kind of a fuzzying of these distinctions. But in an age of compromise, when nothing seems absolute, the gospel of the 144,000 would stand as a sharp antithesis. And people were now being faced with two decisions. Okay, before, they were fearful. We, I guess we've got to compromise a little bit, or it'll be suicide. No, now they're faced with two decisions. You either face the wrath of Rome, or you face the eternal wrath of God. Wrath is unavoidable. You face one or the other. We saw a few weeks ago, they willingly got branded. To do otherwise suicidal and Josephus convinced them God doesn't want you to commit suicide and we can rationalize how we can do this and not really be worshiping uh, their gods but this message from the angel was presenting the only motivation to make a person willing to face the wrath of Rome they didn't want to face the wrath of God eternally that's the only motivation those who receive the mark of the beast, it says, will drink of the wine of the fury of God mixed at full strength in the cup of his wrath. 
God's wrath had brought Rome there to judge Israel in the first place, and then God judged Rome. Um, and he was going to bring other temporal judgments, but it really is thinking about God's eternal wrath that has caused many people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet modern missions neglects the wrath of God. It completely undercuts the gospel. It's disappeared. The pathetic results uh, could have been predicted. Now, my next question in the outline is, whatever happened to preaching on hell? Starting at the second sentence of verse 10, in fact, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. So the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now this is a description of hellfire, eternal torment of all those who refuse to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Now, as Gary mentioned earlier, Jesus bore God's wrath as a substitute for those who put their trust in him, cast their sins on him. But if Christ's substitutionary atonement is rejected, all that is left is wrath. That's what atonement means. It's covering God's wrath. By the way, that's one of the reasons why uh, modernists today don't like to talk about the atonement of God. They've taken it out of their vocabulary. Uh, I went uh, one time to a liberal uh, church, and they had some of the hymns we have, but they substituted words, and atonement was consistently being taken out because they don't want to think about the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is real. Now, granted, it's an uncomfortable subject, but it is inexcusable for preachers to not warn people to flee from the wrath to come. Inexcusable. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God warned Ezekiel, and here he is, a prophet, but he said, hey, even with you, if you do not warn people about my wrath, you will, be, you will have their blood upon your hands. And I think preachers today have the blood of, of countless people on their hands because they do not warn people of God's wrath. Now, it's not just an issue of not warning. A lot of modern preachers don't even believe in eternal wrath. They deny it. It's become more and more popular for evangelicals to deny hell and even Reformed uh, preachers deny the reality of a hell as a place of eternal torment. Recently, the Pope denied that hell is a real place. He claims, hey, it's just a metaphor for suffering and the discomfort you feel when you're alienated from God. Well, look at this passage again. It says, He will be tormented with fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. Now, the word for torment is the word for torture, okay? So hell is torture. When the rich man went to hell, he said, I am in agony in this flame, Luke 16, verse 24. He was conscious, he was talking, he was feeling pain. If hell produces such agony, no wonder Luke 13, verse 28 says, there will be weeping in hell. As one theologian worded it, weeping is not something we get a grip on, it is something that grips us. And he went on to say, Recall how you were affected when you last heard someone weep. Remember how you were moved with compassion to want to protect and restore that person. The Lord wants us to know and consider what an upsetting experience it is for the person in hell. So it's not only a motivation for people to repent and believe the gospel, it's a motivation for us to get out there and preach the gospel, to share, to witness. We need to have compassion upon them. 
Now, if hell is torture, no wonder Jesus said that there would be wailing in hell. Matthew 13, verse 42. Wailing is so intense that it is disturbing. Sometimes it's even frightening when you hear people wail. John Thomas said, Wailing is the pitiable ball of a soul seeking escape, hurt beyond repair, eternally damaged. A wail is sound gone grotesque because of conclusions we can't live with. If people are convulsing with wailing, it's no wonder that Jesus said that this would lead to gnashing of teeth, Luke 13, verse 28. Now, some have thought that the gnashing of teeth is an expression of anger at God and frustration. That's possible. Others have said, uh, no, this is, this grit, it's a gritting of teeth as a defense against crying out or an intense pause when one is too weary uh, to cry out any longer. Either way, this pain lasts for eternity. So you can see when you start meditating on the doctrine of hell, why preachers shy away from this subject. It is a very uncomfortable subject. It is what one person called that hideous doctrine. Now he believed in the doctrine, but he said it just seems hideous to meditate upon, to think about, and yet Jesus called us to do just that. And this book calls us to meditate upon the doctrine of hell. It is for our good that we think about hell. Now some try to explain away the word forever and they say that hell instantly annihilates a person and he ends his existence. That forever does not mean unending consciousness but unending non-existence. So they deny that the person is in hell forever. Now there are a couple of problems with that. The first problem with that is that the exact same word forever is used of both hell and heaven in the same verses. And so if you're saying that forever just means a short time for these people, they're going to maybe suffer for a few minutes and then they're going to be exterminated, you're going to not have any hope that we're going to be in heaven for much more than just a few minutes either. I mean, there's a parallel between the two. Eternity is endlessness. And so it's no wonder that people do not want to think about hell or they try to explain it away. It is a place of endless torment. It's no wonder to me that when people really start thinking about this, they are so grateful for the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. They put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a motivation to believe the gospel and the refusal of the church to preach on hell undercuts the success of the gospel. For sure, we're not imitating Jesus. But hell's not just torment in general. It is a place of torment. It's not just a metaphor. Jesus calls it a place. This is implied by the phrase here, before the holy angels and before the Lamb. Now, the word before indicates a spatial term, and it lines up with other passages that indicate hell is a place in the center of the earth right now. Now, it's not always going to be in the center of the earth. Uh, at the end of Revelation, it says that Hades is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And um, not to go down too much of a rabbit trail, but people have criticized the idea of a lake of fire. They say, ha-ha, you know, that's a contradiction. Lake and fire, those don't go together. But is not a volcano a lake of fire? Is not a sun a lake of fire? It's liquid gas, right, with intense burning heat. In fact, I think that the lake of fire will be a massive sun that will be cast into outer darkness away from every other part of the universe. But that phrase, before the holy angels and before the Lamb, also exposes another error of many theologians. The current pope, 
claims that hell is separation from God and, quote, is not God's work, but is actually our own doing, unquote. In other words, he says it's simply a psychological state, and even there, God didn't have anything to do with it. You know, it's not God's work. But this verse indicates otherwise. The angels and the Lamb are present to guarantee this hellfire. David said, even if you were to go to hell, God would be there. So hell is not the absence of God. Uh, hell is God's active torture of those who are his enemies. And we cannot soften this doctrine to try to make it palatable and to try to make it nice to postmodern man. God is not nice on their terms. He is our Lord and he is their judge. Now some people try to make God out to be desperately trying to keep people out of hell as if hell was the provision of somebody else and he doesn't like it and it's not his will that anybody goes there. But scripture is quite clear. God made all things including hell. Matthew 25 verse 41. Jesus describes hell as being the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God prepared hell for a reason. And you can either hate God for it and experience the torments of hell forever and ever, or you can trust and submit to God, the God who really is, and experience the joys of heaven. But ignoring hell will not make it go away any more than ignoring God will make God go away. Now it was common for older Romanists to treat God as wrathful and distant, and Jesus and Mary as compassionate and kind. But I want you to notice it's Jesus here who is overseeing their torment, their punishment in hell. Now others think that the gospel which is good news is incompatible with hell which is bad news. But notice that Jesus is described not with the metaphor of a lion but with the metaphor of a lamb. The lamb represents the gospel. When the lamb representing the gospel is rejected, hell is guaranteed. The one assumes the other. And the saccharine sweet gospel that ignores hell is often a counterfeit gospel. The gospel is good news indeed because the very one who prepared hell has suffered so that he can offer a way of escape. The very one who prepared hell offers a way of escape. The lamb was sacrificed so that those who put their trust in him would not have to go to hell. We cannot shake our fist at God over hell when he has made a way of escape from hell. Now Seventh-day Adventists speak of soul sleep when a person dies, claim that those who go, um, you know, when they die, uh, they're, they're going to be unconscious and then they'll be destroyed at the end of time. It's only those who are going to heaven that will be conscious. But that's not what the scripture says. Verse 11 says, So the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. They have torment, and it's before the end of history. Okay? And torment is a conscious state. Revelation 20 verse 10 says much the same. It says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Torment is something only can be experienced by somebody who was conscious. In his book, The Fire That Consumes, Edward Fudge tries to explain this away, but really he has to play exegetical dip gymnastics on these two texts. He says that the fire lasts forever, but not the torment. Okay? 
He said, although the wicked are not guaranteed rest during the day and have no certain hope that relief will come at night, this does not say within itself that the suffering lasts all day and all night. Uh, Table Talk magazine wrote an article critiquing uh, his book, and they said, this sounds suspiciously like special pleading, to say the least. There is no hint whatsoever uh, that people cease to exist while the smoke continues forever. After verse 10 describes their torment, verse 11 says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. No rest from the torment. No respite from the torment forever and ever. That does not sound like annihilationism, nor does Christ's story of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay? That's not annihilationism. And Revelation 20 uh, clearly says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, some people think that fire is just a metaphor, but it occurs so frequently that it's hard to dismiss as a metaphor. Over and over, the New Testament says it is a place of fire. For example, Mark 9 describes it as a place where the fire is not quenched. Elsewhere, the New Testament describes hell as a place of fire, everlasting fire, fire unquenchable, this flame, furnace of fire, eternal fire, fire and brimstone. The bottom line is you don't want to be in hell. Okay? And according to Jesus, once you die, it is way too late. Way too late. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to submit to his lordship. And if you have not done so yet, I would urge you to do so immediately before this sermon is even over. And if you don't know how to do so, talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to lead you to the Lord of mercies and share with you the gospel again and show you how you can have assurance of your salvation. Now my next question in your outline is also controversial nowadays. Whatever happened to preaching the absolute imperative of perseverance in holiness? Verse 12 gives a way to tell if a person is genuinely born again, justified, freed from hell, headed toward heaven. It says here is the endurance, you could translate that perseverance, same thing, here is the endurance of the saints, here are those who keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Now just as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, warned Christian Jews that they reverted to Judaism or to Talmudism, it was evidence they were not truly saved in the first place. This verse reminds those tempted to fall away, they're not true believers if they do so. It defines a true believer in four statements. They are saints who are separated from the world, so that deals with our justification. We're instantly given sainthood when we put our faith in Christ. Why? Because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So there's justification, there's definitive sanctification where we're set apart. Then second, it says they will endure in identifying with Christ. Third, they will persevere in keeping God's commandments. That's progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification happens once at the time of our conversion. Progressive sanctification happens over our lifetime. So we persevere in that. And then fourth, they will persevere in having faith in Jesus. Now, in a nutshell, that verse is a complete repudiation of the carnal Christian theory that has come out of Dallas Theological Seminary and is being taught right now in so many Arminian circles. It is a dangerous doctrine that gives a false assurance of salvation to people who are actually headed toward hell. It is so sad. 
This doctrine of perseverance goes hand in hand with the belief in the previous doctrines. God's wrath stands against all sin. His judgments fall on all who are outside of Christ. Hell is his destiny for all who are not walking on the straight and narrow pathway to eternal life. And by the way, this, uh, the, doctor, the typical doctrine of eternal security is a bogus counterfeit of the true doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We believe in the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Okay, Perseverance of the saints means true believers will persevere because God preserves them by His grace. Okay, And those who do not persevere, they weren't saved in the first place. That's the true doctrine of perseverance. Eternal security, at least as many people teach it, is a doctrine straight from the pit of hell because it teaches people that once they made a profession of faith with their mouth, you can live like the devil, it doesn't matter, you still got a ticket to heaven. So for example, in your, in, in your uh, bulletins, I put an actual image of a ridiculous spiritual birth certificate. This is the kind of thing being handed out by many ministries. It's kind of tiny print, so let me read it for you. It says, born again certificate. This is official confirmation of your declaration of being born again being that you, you fill in the blank there, have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are recognized as a born-again Christian on this date of 11-17-2012. Then gives John 3, 16-17, then underneath that is a place where there's two signature marks. Now, the one on the left is signed the Holy Spirit, the one on the right is Gomez Ministries. Now the sheer audacity of this certificate staggers me. I mean, what gives him the privilege of signing for the Holy Spirit? I mean, Holy Spirit can read that person's heart. That evangelist cannot, I guarantee you. And um, how does he know that this person has a genuine faith? I mean, Scripture over and over again tells us that there are people who think they have faith in Jesus Christ, but they don't really have a saving faith. For example, just sometime read the last three verses of John chapter 2, it says that many people believed in Jesus, Greek word pistuo, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. The word commit himself is pistuo. He didn't believe in them. They believed in him. He didn't believe in them. It says why? Because he knew what was in their hearts. They believed in him to make them comfortable, to do miracles for them, to be a savior from physical things, but they did not believe in him to save them from their sins. So it was, um, it, it was a false Jesus that they were really uh, uh, putting their trust in. Their faith was not an unconditional surrender to Jesus. Let me read you Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Incredibly sobering words, but very necessary. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, he didn't say they lost their salvation. He said that they were never saved in the first place. And the proof of it was their life was not changing. There was no evidence the Spirit was transforming them. He didn't say he knew them once, but now he doesn't know them. No, he says, I never knew you. They had a false assurance of their salvation from the get-go. I was witnessing to a drunk 
on a street one time, and after explaining the way of salvation, he said, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Let me show you. And he pulled out, he had it right in his pocket. He pulled out of his shirt pocket a little ratty card that said spiritual birth certificate with the same language that's on this ridiculous certificate in your, um, in, in your bulletin here. And he told me that he had said a prayer with a pastor, and the pastor had said to him, anytime you doubt your salvation, look at this spiritual birth certificate. It will help you to not doubt your salvation. Now, his life had not changed at all. He had no interest in God, in Scripture, in holiness, in church worship. He was a drunk, and Scripture says all drunks will go to hell along with all cowards and thieves. So it's not just drunks. He had no faith to follow Christ. He simply had faith in this spiritual birth certificate, which is a pretty flimsy basis for your faith. He showed no evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and yet he had an absolute confidence that he was going to heaven because this certificate said so. This is why the Christian carnal theory is such a damnable heresy. It is a damnable heresy. It has sent so many people confident in their salvation to hell. This is the blasphemy being taught by men like Jody Dillow and Zane Hodges and all, all other ultra-hyper-dispensational Arminians. It requires no repentance, leads to no holiness in life. You may think I'm exaggerating. I can give you story after story. Let me tell you one story. It's a, a pastor in Texas who... I had a prostitute make a profession of faith in her uh, church, in his church, but she didn't want to give up her um, career as a prostitute. And when some other Christians in the church kind of questioned whether she really was a Christian, the pastor stood up in her defense and he says, if you require her to repent or to change her lifestyle, you're preaching another gospel. You are preaching salvation by works. Now, that is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, we believe, so he said, I will defend her right to choose sin if that is her choice. If she wants to get more rewards, she can abandon her sin, but I will defend her right to choose this sin. Well, justification by faith is completely different than what he is talking about. Certainly, we are justified by faith alone. But as the Reformers said over and over again, we are not justified by a faith that is alone. Faith will always produce the fruits of good works. It's not the good works that justify us, but James says, if you have a faith that never produces anything else, it's a dead faith. It's a counterfeit faith. It's not a real faith. It's a faith that those people had in the last few verses of John chapter 2. So Paul and James make that very clear. Anything, any faith that does not result in sanctification to some degree is a false faith, a dead faith. So scripture is quite clear where there is no perseverance, there is no salvation. And therefore, if you've got assurance, you've got a false assurance of salvation. First John is the book. It's the book God has given to us on how we can know that we are saved how we can have assurance of our salvation. You read through that book and you'll realize very quickly, assurance of salvation has nothing whatsoever to do with staring at a stupid, silly certificate like that spiritual birth certificate. No, it has to do with analyzing, do I have any evidence in my life that the Spirit of God is changing me? Do I have a hunger for God? Do I have a hunger for prayer? Do I have any evidence whatsoever? Let me give you some examples from 1 John. 
This is the book on assurance of salvation. 1 John 2, 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He's saying you're not even a child of God if you're not beginning to keep his commandments in some way. Why? Because a justified sinner is always going to begin to be a sanctified sinner because he has got a living faith. 1 John 2, 5 says, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. 1 John 3, 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That drunk that I shared the gospel with did not love the brethren. I told him he was believing a lie because all those who have genuine faith will persevere in faith and in good works. 1 John 3, 18 through 19 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. How do we assure, gain assurance of our salvation? He says, by seeing evidence of God's love in our hearts that enables us to love each other, to love our siblings and others in word and in deed. You don't see that? Maybe you don't have the Spirit of God taking residence in you. 1 John 3, 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 5, 18, We know that whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God guards himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Here's the bottom line. There are so many people who think they are Christians headed toward heaven, but they will end up in hell because they don't have a genuine faith that leads to perseverance on the straight and narrow. If you have a lackadaisical view of your sin, you really should question your salvation. You may still be on the road to hell. If you have no hunger for God's word or love of the brethren, you should question your salvation. All newborn babes are said by Peter to hunger for the milk of the word. Stillborn babies do not. Dead Christians do not. Christians who have dead faith do not. They're false Christians. The Apostle Paul warned us, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, 2 Corinthians 3.15. Now they could say, oh yeah, I made profession of faith publicly. Of course I'm in the faith. And he said, no, you show no evidence of it. Your lives seem to be so contrary to what a Christian really is. Where is the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Where is the evidence of a living faith instead of a dead faith? The eternal stakes are so great that we cannot assume that we are in the faith. And so Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This is a serious issue. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, we require some evidence. We don't want to hinder children from coming to communion. But we do require you to show some evidence that the Spirit has taken residence, has made some changes, that there is this kind of love. We don't want a false assurance to be given to our children or to adults either. Now, there may be some in this congregation who are headed to hell, and I am praying that God's Spirit would waken your conscience. And verse 12 is simply a summary of this pervasive doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God will preserve His elect all the way to heaven, so there's a sense in which we have eternal security. But the way he does so is not leaving us in our sins. He does so by causing them to persevere by his grace. 
Verse 12 says, here is the endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. Does that describe you? If not, humble yourself before Almighty God and beg Him for mercy. Don't trust some past profession of faith because your faith in your faith is not going to save you. <laughs> it's uh, only faith in Jesus Christ, which, by the way, faith is an unconditional surrender to Him, will get you on the road to heaven. And if you think you had faith in Him in the past, but you're not surrendering your life to Him now, maybe you're backslidden, but you also might not be in the faith. Question whether your faith was living or dead. Now this section ends with the promise of heaven. Those who put their faith in Jesus and commit themselves to following Him need not doubt. The Holy Spirit Himself will give us assurance as He causes us to persevere. And those who persevere need not fear death. Verse 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and their works follow along with them. Now, that's a beautiful verse. I'm not going to get into all of the meaning of it. I've preached a couple of times on that at funerals. But I just want you to notice that one phrase, who die in the Lord. Jesus is our security. And this passage is not calling you to have a faith in your works or a faith in your faith or even a faith in your perseverance. That's going to be another counterfeit. It's not because you persevere that you're saved. You're saved by believing in Jesus, receiving his righteousness, and perseverance is merely the evidence that you really did trust in him. So you believe in Christ alone. You are to live in him, you're to die in him. One day when Vice President uh, Calvin Coolidge was presiding over the Senate, one senator angrily told another senator that he could go straight to hell. And the other senator was very offended. They must have had softer skin back then because this kind of language goes on all the time. But uh, he, he called upon uh, uh, Vice President Coolidge to rebuke this guy for what he had said. And Calvin Coolidge had been flipping through a book while listening to the debate. And uh, Calvin Coolidge said, I've been looking through the rule book. You don't have to go. <laughs> and that's what I would say to you. Jesus paid the price for hell, and you do not have to go there. He laid down his life for you, and he calls you now to lay your life at his feet and to say, Lord, I trust you. I just give myself an unconditional surrender to you. I really do believe that your righteousness is sufficient to save me. I give you my sins. That's all you need to be secure for heaven. And it's easy, very easy to be fearful of hell. When I was growing up, many times I wondered if I was saved because I wondered if I had previously exercised a genuine faith and a genuine repentance. I knew there was such a thing as a false faith and a false repentance. And somebody wisely asked me, well, do you trust Jesus right now? I said, yes. He said, well, good. That's one evidence of genuine faith. Genuine faith keeps on trusting, keeps on following. So don't worry about the past. Keep looking to Jesus. And that's what I would say to you. Back in the days when thousands traveled west on the Oregon Trail, there was a group of pioneers who was traveling quite slowly because they were in covered wagons that were being pulled by oxen. And one day, to their horror, they saw this smoke all along uh, the west on the prairie. It was a prairie fire that was being driven by the wind and coming toward them very, very quickly, burning up the, the grass and the shrubs. 
And they looked back at the river that they had crossed the day before, and they knew there's no way that they'd be able to make it back to that river. But somebody had the foresight to start a fire right behind them, and that fire then began sweeping same direction behind them. And as soon as that area was burned over, they quickly moved onto the burned-out area. And, you know, once the fire would come there, be nothing more to burn, uh, they would be safe. And uh, as the flames roared toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we will not all be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flame cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. And that's such a marvelous image of Jesus, what he bore for our safety. He bore God's wrath to provide a way of escape for us. And I know, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, you know, this is a scary sermon. This is a scary doctrine. It's not a pleasant doctrine to preach on. It's not a pleasant doctrine to hear. But to those of you who are fearful of hell, I would say exactly the same thing. Jesus bore the fire of God's wrath. And if we will back up, that's repentance, and we will stand on Jesus, that's faith, then we are secure. But if we drift from Jesus, we stray from him, that's lack of perseverance, we're not safe. In that case, we're walking right back into the fire, which the elect, by the way, will not do. They will not do. The only assurance we can have is given by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will only give assurance as we cling to Jesus and follow him. The hymn writer wrote, On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race, and thus becomes our hiding place. So that's what I want to ask you. Are you hiding from the fires of God's wrath and of hell in Jesus alone? I want to end by reading my favorite poem. It's written by Charles Spurgeon. It speaks to both God's wrath and to God's salvation. It's really quite contrary to the false hope of the false gospel, but it says this. Forth to the battle rides our king. He climbs the conquering car. He fits his arrows to the string and hurls his bolts afar. Convictions pierce the stoutest hearts. They smart, they bleed, they die. Slain by Emmanuel's well-aimed darts in helpless heaps they lie. Behold, he bears his two-edged sword and deals almighty blows. His all-revealing killing word twixt joints and marrow goes. Who can resist him in the fight? He cuts through coats of mail. Before the terror of his might, the hearts of rebels fail. Anon, arrayed in robes of grace, he rides the trampled plain with pity beaming in his face and mercy in his train. Mighty to save, he now appears, mighty to raise the dead, mighty to staunch the bleeding wound and lift the fallen head. Victor alike in love and arms, myriads around him bend. Each captive owns his matchless charms, each foe becomes his friend. They crown him on the battlefield, they press to kiss his feet. Their hands, their hearts, they're all they yield. His conquest is complete. None love him more than those he slew. His heart, their hate, has slain. Henceforth, 
Their souls are all on fire to spread his gentle reign. It's my prayer that each one of you would escape the fires of hell by being conquered by Jesus, regenerated, justified, adopted as children, filled with the fire of his love. And may each of you passionately share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are in the world. Tell them to flee from the wrath to come, just as the 144,000 did. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that a doctrine like this can either make people hate you or make people adore you as they recognize that they deserved your wrath. They deserved your just displeasure. And Father, if there are any here who are in the former category who hate you because of this and want a God in their own image, that just as this hymn said, you would conquer that hate and replace it with a supernatural love that glories in you as you are, not a God in our own image, but the God who really is. We submit ourselves before you. We give ourselves in unconditional surrender to you. We trust you now and for all of eternity. We believe that you died to save us from our sins, that you died to change us and to give us righteousness, not only the imputed righteousness of Christ in justification, but the imparted righteousness of Christ in sanctification, one day forever removing the presence of sin from our lives as we are glorified in heaven. We look forward to that day. We want to be more and more like Jesus. And I pray that this Sabbath day, our hearts would be stirred up to discuss your holy word, to have a holy hunger for your word, to give evidences even in the way we have Sabbath conversations that we truly delight in you. And so we commit this day to you. I commit this, your people, to you and pray that you would draw us evermore to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.